Hello and welcome back to Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. Today, it's so long, farewell, how feeders and goodbye. It's the final episode of this podcast that we've been producing now for two years. We'll be looking back over that period, some of the big themes that have emerged, some of our more interesting culture picks, some of the culture picks that we now regret, uh, talking about some of the wonderful guests that we've had on this program and thanking you, the listener, for sticking with us through the journey. Um, to Don't forget, this is a product of the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're not already a member by now, for God's sake, get on the website, ipa.org.au, see how you can join or donate. We'd love to have you as one of our nearly 7,000 members. Uh, as always, in the studio, and in fact, the only other person in the studio today is my co-host, Dr. Chris Berg. Thank you, Scott. It is extraordinary pleasure to be in the studio again <laughs> after mandatory lockdown. Yes, indeed. Are. Yes, it's been a while. It has been a while. It has been a while. It's been a trauma. I haven't minded it, to be honest. It's kind of um, – there have been a lot of really challenging things about lockdown, but having – the freedom just to sit at your computer all day, every day, not run back and forth across the city and between meeting rooms mm. and all that sort of thing. It actually hasn't been awful. Yeah. But uh, later on in the show, Chris, we will actually just completely indulge ourselves talking about what it's like to launch a podcast. And it's certainly been an interesting two years in which to do it. Uh, we started in one studio, uh, which was then water damaged <laughs> that, that through circumstances we won't go into. That meant we went to temporary studios. Uh, then we came back. Then there was a global pandemic and economic recession. And we were, and we were kicked we were out of that. Podcasting from our, from our lounge rooms. Then we were brought bedrooms. in temporarily for a little bit. Um, uh, and, then, and then the pandemic kicked back in again and, and, and now here we are. And then it was, <laughs> then it was hybrid. So, um, But uh, the, all that while we were trying to figure out what the hell was going on in the world. That's right, Scott. So what I thought we should do today, why don't we start, why don't we start big? Yep. Um, uh, obviously, so we've been doing this podcast for two, two years, but this year, I think, or even this month, it feels like the close of two of the big, big themes that we've had mm. for this podcast, certainly in the last year or so. So Donald Trump, um, uh, the electoral college, so there's not really much of a chance anymore. Donald Trump is no longer the president of the United States. Trump, as we discussed last week, being such a dominant ideological, um, figure or a dominant figure for ideological reasons. Um, and of course, COVID, um, which is still raging in the United States and in Europe, but there is a vaccine and now they're starting to roll that out. Um, what do you want to start with? Scott, I'm going to ask you, what let's, do you let's, think- Let's start the, with politics. Okay, yeah. let's start with politics. What uh, What is the big takeaway when you reflect on the political ructions of the last year or two? What What, what have you learned? Um so here's, here's my take on it, Chris. And because there's only two of us, I can have a slightly longer take. Yeah, no, indulge yourself. Uh, we, we did try to have a self-imposed rule at one stage that, you know, no more than a minute. Yeah, but that wasn't going to happen. Um, well, not not with you anyway. But, <laughs> uh, but anyway, and now you've given me the bug and I'm going to rave on a little bit. So, and it's sort of personal in a way. I must admit that when Trump came along and uh, this hugely disruptive figure, I sort of felt almost like everything that I'd known about politics was almost out of date. Um, you know, I came of age in the Reagan era, you know, uh, was very much in the tradition of, um, you know, small L liberalism, um, uh, Edmund Burke conservatism, and I sort of felt like this was out 
outside of of all of that, and that the the claims made by say the um, you know the Michael Anton Claremont review of books, the Flight ninety three election, like this is this is the absolute crisis, and cometh the hour, cometh the man. And the podcast has really helped me work this through as we've had some great guests and talk it through. And in, and in many ways, I really only completed the cycle last week when I looked back and um, talked about how Trump's people used to totally pile on Reagan and say, oh, you know, Reagan, bah, what did he do? That was nothing. You know, the Republican Party is a nothing. It's, you know, liberalism is a nothing, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I think now I look back on this amazing four years of Trump, which I think has been uh, net positive for the political process. Don't get me wrong. I think uh, net positive uh, in policy outcomes, net positive in terms of shaking up politics. But I look back and I see the continuities. I see in the long view of history, which is what we're here for, um, you know, there are populist uprisings and for good reason because those in power don't like to give it away. They don't ever like to give it away. And um, so uh, whether it's from, you know, as Andrew Jackson as president or um, populist uprisings, you know, in, in Australia or in France or every other country, I just think there's there's probably more continuities there than we, we give credit for. And I, I think Edmund Burke was right about everything. Isn't, isn't though, the I, – I guess it depends on the level that you assess it on. So you can see that there's continuities between – the policy outcomes for the Trump administration and the Bush administration and the the earlier Bush administration, Reagan and so forth. So you can see policy continuities, an interest in deregulation, an interest in lower taxes um, and <laughs> lower taxes even in while um, in deficit spending and um, debt boosting lower taxes and so an interest in, in conservative judges. But that, but that isn't right what the Trump movement is about mm. and that isn't what the um, ideological shift refers to. So I, I, I've, as you know and as listeners will know, I have been very uncomfortable throughout the Trump mm. years. Um, I have never felt more separated from the, quote, centre-right than I ever have before. In the Bush years, the war in Iraq notwithstanding, you could still tell a story that there was a libertarian wing of the um, Republican Party and you could tell a story that, that the um, Liberal Party and the centre-right had a libertarian wing um, in Australia. I don't see where that is certainly in the United States anymore given that um, and, and given that we are increasingly taking our cues from the United States, as this most recent election has shown with this incredible engagement by Australians, um, I'm, I, I, I revert back to a more traditional libertarian, well, you know, some things I like, some things I don't. I don't feel the need to um, support or defend any particular thing that, they, um, that a Republican president does. And I've always, I, I've been thinking about, okay, so what bothered me about Trump or what bothered me about the Trump revolution. Um, and I think it's a policy story, right? I, I, I am worried about the institutions. I am worried about the end of um, responsible conservatism. I do think responsible conservatism has a role 
um, to play, even if I wouldn't describe myself as a responsible conservative. But the two things that made Donald Trump and the Trump revolution policy different are trade and immigration. And if I look back at the book I wrote on libertarianism that I wrote just before Donald Trump became president, um, the first two policy areas that I care about are trade and immigration. And while deregulation is super important to me, and he has done um, creditably well relative to previous presidents, I just, I, I can't get over the fact that those two big areas, which is that um, the, the role of economic integration, globalization, and human mobility play in getting us out of poverty, reflecting our, our lives. So I, I've felt very uncomfortable about this, mm. this whole thing. And, um, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't help that Trump is a unique character. I, I may have said this on the podcast, but he's always felt like a, an inside joke that I didn't get. Everybody else seemed to be having great fun with it, but I wasn't. Um, but I think it's sort of, I, I think it has an impact because it's not just the um, it's not just the policy framework that governs a people. It's how those people think of themselves and how they think of the desirability of a leader with certain characteristics. Um, and I wonder what the future of the center right is if Donald Trump. It, there, there won't ever be another Donald Trump, as we said last week. Mm -hmm. But if he does become a template that people aspire to, I wonder what centre-right politics looks like then. Yeah, so staying, staying big for a moment, the way I think about this in terms of um, uh, fusionism as well, so mm. still on what I was talking about before. So, you know, I started to feel like a dinosaur and f fusionism is the term of art uh, originally introduced into the centre-right by uh, William F. Buckley uh, in America in the 1950s um, and he was more from the conservative wing, but um, believed that if the right was ever to flourish again, uh, it had to be that broad church, as you, as you say, and it, and it had to bring in the, the libertarians. It had to somehow balance the libertarians, um, uh, Christian fundamentalists, um, uh, leftist anti-communists, of course, were a very, very important part of that coalition. The Cold War was in full flight. And there was this existential uh, threat, if not to the West, then certainly to the um, uh, to the developing world, where everything was up for grabs. I picked up a great book along the way, calling uh, by a K KGB guy called um, "But the World Was Going Our Way." <laughs> <laughs> you know, nineteen eighty nine. It was like, damn, just when we, <laughs> oh no, <laughs> just when we had it under control. Um, and and again, the 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 uh, the arch Trumpers, um, you know, some good friends of mine didn't just say Trump is great. It's like fusionism is dead. You know, everyone has the to be like The dead consensus, the dead consensus. Yeah, that's right. You know, and but I think we're about to be mugged by reality. Um, so when I, when I take the long view, I may be too relaxed about it. I may be assuming that the work will be done, but it will have to be done. This will have to be rebuilt because I just, I, I think personally there is no alternative um, because politics is made of coalitions. The second point is, and it and relates to William F. Buckley's fusion, is what an unusual time that was in terms of trade. Mm. Now, I am uh, I very much endorse what you say about trade. I probably have different views about immigration, and even analytically, you would probably I would say that they there's a distinction there. But it was a very unusual moment for America to back 
a free trade world. It was a historically protectionist country. Um, their tariffs in the Great Depression virtually, you know, destroyed the bloody world economy, and in some ways led to the Second World War. That's a bit of that's a bit of a burden for America to bear. Um, uh, the British Empire did the same thing with imperial preference and led to World War One. That's a bit of a burden to bear. So I am free trade. Um, but it goes against every sort of instinct of the average person. And, you know, not everyone reads David Ricardo. But in when the world was up for grabs... Certainly not economists. So, that's right. <laughs> Much less economists nowadays. <laughs> um, when the world was up for grabs... Uh, in the Cold War, America had a vision of free trade ensuring a free free world. It was it was the antithesis of what communism was, and so America could get behind it. You know, Pax Americana meant making the world safe for American corporations to trade in. So there was a little bit of self interest there too. End of the Cold War, that that sense of self interest is broken. And Americans could no longer understand what free trade was for and no, no one could actually get political benefit from arguing for it. And unfortunately, libertarians have never been a big part of the fusion enterprise when oh, it comes to voting. That's you know, that, I mean, that's absolutely right. And libertarians are an incredibly tiny fraction of the population. I, mm. I, I do think that um, if you uh, surveyed public policy preferences, um, the dominant or the plurality is actually on relatively socially liberal and relatively economically liberal, but the idea that that would be a coherent um, political movement that's more than, say, 10% at the top end mm. um, is a bit fantasy. But I, I like your point because the um, free trade has always been about free trade blocks. It's always been a, a free trade as it is done not as it is in theory, has been driven by the idea of, say, British imperial preference, hmm. where it's free trade within the British Empire and then barriers outside. You could say the same thing in the Cold War environment, that it was free trade as a geopolitical strategy to bring and integrate countries into a liberal tent, the Western world. Now, to my mind, that's good. So, if you are interested in free trade, one of the earliest stories that you hear or arguments you hear for it is the liberal peace theory. So the idea that countries that trade are less likely to go to war. Now, the empirical evidence on that is, um, is, is complex, but what I am convinced by is more recent arguments or more recent evidence that suggests it's not about the peace doesn't come from the fact that you have a McDonald's. So, you know, the McDonald's peace theory. That's the Thomas Friedman. The, yeah, uh, theory, those sorts yeah. of silly ideas, that, that, that's not true. But it is the fact that um, if a government has a lot of rent-seeking opportunities from um, uh, going to war with each other, then they're more likely to do so. And free trade is actually a counterbalance so what we're looking for is liberal institutions of which low tariffs and low um, taxes are one of those. And that actually helps integrate economies. Now, the, the reason I raise this, and it, it's interesting to think about, okay, well, so what happened in the 1990s? So we lost the idea that we were competing with another block. Mm. In the 2000s, we reshifted our geopolitical 
thinking to uh, ideological war against terrorism. So um, a physical war or a soft war against terrorism and some real wars, obviously, in Afghan, uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, but it wasn't inherently it, became, it wasn't it became a civilizational battle rather than well a, no it was described as a civilizational battle um uh and you know talked about on both left and right as if it was a civilizational battle but it was a police action with some um quasi war conflicts it wasn't this idea that there was a great block that we had indeed. to we had to get rich to prove otherwise well indeed all the and sorry to interrupt your flow but it was the assumption also was well, having created all those institutions, it was like, oh, hurrah, now everyone can join. Ah, China. Oh, good, they're opening up. They want to be a market economy. Fantastic. Come join the WTO oh, look, yeah. and play by our rules. Yeah, look, but I, I have sympathy for the for the idea. It seemed right? like a good idea at the time. No, it did, it did seem like a good <laughs> idea at the time. And and um, I, I think we have to be smart about the way we describe what's happened to China because there was a period um, uh, in the 2000s where A – they were actually very pro-United States, um, and B, they were moving further liberal. Uh, they were liberalizing at a rapid clip, much mm. rap, much faster than than um, they had before. But now, obviously, that's not the case. And under Xi Jinping, that's that's they've had a remarkable rollback. And but now we're in this environment, right? So mm. let's let's say let's say we're in the Cold War again. Yep. Okay, and I'm not sure that's the right language to use, but nonetheless, let's say we're in the Cold War again. Instead of trying to have an open, free world, we are trying to use the tools of mercantilism. We are trying to use tariffs. We're trying to use um, we're trying to use our economy as a weapon against our opponents at our cost. It hurts us to have the tariffs. The, the burden falls on us. Now, of course, this is not the case in Australia. And I think the Australian government, in fact, I wrote this in a piece um, a couple of weeks ago. The Australian government has kind of tried to say a couple of things that are a bit Trumpy and you know, they're against negative in, globalism. Yeah, in fact, that was covered on one of our episodes. I was yeah. going through the show notes where uh, it was a lowy lecture by, uh, by Morrison. By Scott Morrison. So they've, they've tried to, they've had this sort of showy, like, we're against negative globalism and like, no, I'm for negative globalism. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but but we haven't done that. But the United States has. The United yeah, States yeah. think that it's going to use tariffs to fight a cold war with China when those tariffs are just going to make them poor. I think I, I think it's catastrophically counterproductive. Yeah, I mean the the um, actually I, I just want to say one last thing on fusionism, yeah. and and we're talking about the. Um, the libertarian wing perhaps never never being a you know a great proportion of the voters i mean the other um uh ongoing challenge that you know neo maybe i'm the first of the neo fusionists you know, <laughs> <laughs> um faces of course is the difference in the business community um that uh, i mean the institute of public affairs was founded in 1943 um by a group of businessmen um, you know, free Good, people. solid Melbourne businessmen. Absolutely. Um, they were worried about wartime controls. Uh, they, they understood that Australia was a, you know, needed, it was a small economy, needed to be a small open trading economy, uh, and they wanted smaller government uh, and the removal of the war, wartime restrictions to enable that. And, um, and then again in the 80s, um, you know, we saw that wave of reform, and again the IPA was there. Um, ultimately it was... Uh, 
to the credit of the Hawke and Keating ALP governments that they instituted or completed a series of reforms that the Fraser government had only, Fraser and Howard had only just started with, um, that deregulated the Australian economy to an extent, uh, opened it up to the world psychologically as much as anything. Um, uh, and business was at the forefront of that. They were very much thought leaders um, and supporters of that whole program. And I do feel very depressed about the Australian business community such as it is at the moment. I was just looking at uh, Chanticleer's survey of the 50 biggest CEOs in, um, uh, in Australia. Uh, what should we do now that, you know, we, we're coming out of uh, pandemic, quote, unquote? And they all said, oh, well, the government uh, should just keep borrowing and spending. This is great. You know, it was just like wasn't just Keynesian sort of pump priming. It was like completely uncritical, completely unthought out, no no vision of anything. And uh, to the extent that Stachetti, the editor of the AFR, had to say, what about some reforms, guys? What about the <laughs> supply side of the economy? And and it's like you look at these business leaders and you think, is that it? Is that all we've got? Yeah. You know, where's where's the mercantile culture in Australia that actually understands the challenging Challenges facing our nation. So that's another – so arguing against myself now about the prospects of neo-fusionism <laughs> is, um, uh, I, you know, where's the, where's the support from business going to come from? And in America certainly, yes, it's the rent-seeking businesses in America that uh, they weren't really about the China – you know, putting China back in its box. It was just pure rent-seeking. You know, Whirlpool wanted – to be able to put up the cost of its, of its bloody washing machines, yeah. you know. So um, John Roskam and I – for some years have been talking about um, thinking about this problem as Australia as a chairman's lounge economy. <laughs> um, so the chairman's lounge is, of course, the secret Qantas lounge. Um, if, you, if you're if you um, a Qantas club member or business member, or um, you'll see as you walk up the stairs in Melbourne. Just when, you think, a, just when you think you've made it. Just when you think you've made it, there's a private lounge. It says a private entry or something like that. And behind that, it's it's very special service. It's um, entirely by the invite of the chairman of Qantas. Um, and it's got basically all of Australia's CEOs, um, the top public servants, the, of course, um, every member of parliament, so it's really it's the sign you've made it in Australia, and um, one of the sickening things about Australia and the Australian business community is how much lounge access is really critical to their um, to their morale and well-being. And I understand that because I do a lot of travel too. But nonetheless, the point being that the chairman's lounge economy is very much a um, or the chairman's lounge describes an environment where you get the top people or the most highly recognised people, I should say. Well, the most the people at the top of their individual hierarchies, and you get them all in a lounge. You separate them. If you're a member of the chairman's um, uh, lounge, then you 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 get upgraded to first class or business class, basically whenever that's possible. Um, it's just a a very closed environment, um, and. You know, it's a funny thing, and it's an interesting thing to think of. But more, it describes a um, a bubble. It's an information bubble as much as anything. And so, I I I think there's two explanations we could have for what you're describing. One is they're all just busy rent seeking, and they get a lot of benefits from the status quo. And I think there's a lot to that. But I think it's also an intellectual bubble. Hmm. I don't think that they're getting different ideas. So 
it, they're not getting the idea that we would need to have substantial deregulation of the economy. And we might have to make hard choices about deregulation of the economy. We might have to cut red tape that some people like. We might have to reduce regulations in areas that might might um, it will increase economic growth, but might make people feel like they're being swallowed up by a market economy if we're going to get that economic growth. But I, I think there's just a um, there's an intellectual bubble a lot of them live in. They're not getting other information, and to the extent that we live in a populist age, it's because. I think a lot of other people are getting information and the people who are under those people at the top of the hierarchy now have access to all sorts of new ideas and so forth, good or bad, um, and are looking at the, the CEOs and the politicians and wondering, well, how come you don't know what I obviously know? How come you don't know that deregulation is the really only way we're going to get out of the, the problem we're in? Yeah, which, which perhaps gets us into that, that whole idea of um – uh, official versus heterodox views, and and certainly the uh, uh, it's almost like the, the the great institutions of of state exist now not to you know produce original analysis. So they're just there to regurgitate the the official views, and we'll perhaps come back to that in the pandemic. But um, I mean, this show is not here to discuss economics, and uh, I mean, you are in the um, affiliated with the school of. Finance and economics. Economics, finance and marketing. But um, at, at the Blockchain Innovation Hub is a separate unit. The there moment, you so. go. Um, but, uh, you know, th this has been the problem with economics too. And again, uh, I don't want to uh, um, go on about what these wretched CEOs are doing. But, of course, they, uh, to the extent that they have any sort of knowledge or nostrums of economics, um, I mean, that is the economics nowadays. And, and what you and I think of as economics is seen as heterodox or <laughs> archaic. You know these 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 notions that you know wealth is actually you know created through through exchange and you know and markets and uh, and governments you know perhaps can can support that and you know provide the rule of law and all sorts of useful things like that but that uh, they do not in and of themselves actually create wealth and um, that is now a f fantastically irreverent and heterodox notion. <laughs> um, it's like. Um, uh, someone you put me on to, uh, Peter Botke yeah. uh, in America. Um, the great it, Austrian economist. Indeed. Um, so I like the way when he writes a, a book about what we call economics, he calls it mainline economics. Yes, he, so, so the mainline. Yeah, uh, this is economics. What those guys are doing is just rubbish. So he's got um, a, a description which I think is very compelling um, between mainstream economics, so that's the economics that most academic economists and definitely most economists in the private sector will um, use, uh, you know, if you've done first year, it's the first year macro and first year micro mm. stuff. Um, you're going to do a supply and demand curve and then you're going to do um, uh, the equivalent, the ISLM curve in, in macroeconomics. But he argues that in fact there's a tradition and a coherent tradition of um, – uh, economics that he calls mainline economics that goes from Adam Smith all the way to the modern Austrians and institutional economists. Mises and Hayek. Mises, Mises and Hayek, um, uh, even the contract theorists like Oliver Williamson and Oliver Hart, um, all, all recent Nobel Prize winners, Eleanor Ostrom. Um, and what he's describing there is an economics that says – that the primary activity that we do in an economy, in fact, we do in a society, is we make exchanges. Mm. How do we know what exchanges to make? 
How can we make those exchanges so that they make us better off? And how can and then how does the government Which regulate? It's an information or not regulate? problem as well. It's an information problem. But the key thing that I think so um, my colleagues at RMIT, Sinclair, Darcy, Jason, um, Aaron, um, all of which will be well known to IPA listeners. Um, we wrote a book at the start of this year on COVID. And the point that we were making is that based on all this mainline economics, any government should know that to freeze an economy, to send people home suddenly, to shut down shops, um, uh, to shut down companies, to insist that everything just immediately shuts down and, and, and we should just pick it up in a couple of months or a couple of weeks. You are doing irreparable harm to that economy. Um, you are severing relationships. You are breaking models of production. You are um, undermining not just consumer confidence, but the confidence to invest. Um, you are damaging supply chains and so forth. Now, even if we say that that was necessary at the time, it is a fantasy to imagine that that will be easy to rebuild. Mm. And the regulations that we have right now are regulations that were designed to support the rich economy we had in 2019, not the poor economy we have at the end of 2020. Um, and, you know, so we were arguing for deregulation, of course. Yeah. Um, oh, and and that, that sparked some great discussions and, and certainly the um, Institute of Public Affairs um, we had a series of emails that we started sending out to members because this was obviously a, um, uh, a, a crisis in so many ways, um, even when it wasn't actually a pandemic. It was, it was clearly a sort of a crisis in, in, in confidence in, in government decision-making and lots of things were going on. And we started sending out emails to our members and uh, it was my privilege to actually do the first uh, of those emails. So March, April, probably April, um, and I remember making the point that um, in, in terms of that inability of decision makers um, to understand what you were just saying, it, it, it is again that markets, when we talk about markets and, uh, you know, people, you know, criticise, you know, oh, those bloody economists, soulless utilitarians, exasperating calculators, it's, it's a web of human relationships. Um, markets are built on trust. Um, and the relationships that you have um, with, your, with your suppliers, your customers, your, your reputation. These, this is a completely human thing. And again, as you say, this, this goes right back to Adam Smith. You know, there's no ISLM curves in Adam Smith. <laughs> in fact, there wasn't in Keynes either, but it's by the by. Um, uh, and uh, so what was so terrifying um, to me was not just that, yeah, we're going to close down the private sector, it's that there was this complete lack of understanding of what the private sector is, <laughs> that, that how it actually operates. So non at the very least, lack of comprehension, um, and then particularly in Victoria, just a complete lack of care, like just don't care. You know, as John Roscombe said in his uh, email to members last Friday, one of the scariest things he read was John Fain uh, when this was raised, said in a column in The Age, oh, yeah, businesses will go bust, but there's always businesses going bust just like they did last year, just like they will again next year. It was like it was that yeah. brutal. Um, and so that's what we 
we're rebelling against, I guess, in a way. Yeah, look, uh, I mean, imagine, you said you didn't want to do too much economics, but let's just do a bit more. Uh, imagine the economy as a massively complex network of contracts. Some of those are um, uh, written down, some of those are employment contracts, some of those are just implicit contracts, agreements, handshake deals. Um, it's all those contracts that mean that supply chains function, that the bread is in Baker's Delight when you need it, um, that you know supermarkets function, that the toilet paper is well stocked and all that sort of thing. And, and the government decided to sever a very large number of those mm. contracts mm. overnight. It didn't know what contracts it was severing, right? We don't have a, a national audit of all implicit mm. contracts or even or employment contracts, but it just cut them. I actually think in a funny way, the um, we've done remarkably well given that. And mm. uh, I think I was more, I, I, I had a view that it would be that we would have much more catastrophic supply chain challenges than we did. And I'm kind of in awe of capitalism even more mm. that um, we've held up really far. But you can see it everywhere, right? So my we bought a bike for my wife the other day and um, you, you're supposed to get a bike serviced a couple of weeks into getting it. And unfortunately, they just had to shut down the services because – there was too much business for bikes. <laughs> like they just couldn't, um, we've restructured a lot of our different preferences. Um, you know, you go into stores and there'll be way too many of one product and not enough of this, which we, you know, th these are minor frustrations in the world, but you can see the shadow of those choices come up very unpredictably everywhere around the economy, even in Australia where we've done, well, you know, where, where virus-wise we've done very well. Yes, it, it's um, and and you know freestyling a little bit here, but it was uh, you know we oft, I often quote from Tyler Cowen's uh, blog Marginal Revolution, and uh, he's very much very much um, uh, tech curious, if you like. <laughs> you know there is this, this, and I know you wanted to talk about technology in this view. Um, uh, you know we've tech like Silicon Valley tech. You know um, it's obviously done some good things, but you know politically. Um, probably been a malign influence uh, in a lot of areas, um, you know, in, certainly in terms of the culture wars. Um, but uh, Tyler Cowen was reporting the, on this idea that having lived through a period of like stagnation in business and, and too much rent seeking, that about the only good thing to come out of 2020 is that remarkable adaptive entrepreneurial response of so many different companies and organisations that that have risen to the challenge, that have found new um, business models, and that maybe some good will come out of that. And um, and uh, this isn't even uh, of a piece, but, you know, something like CSL, you know, in Australia, it sort of makes you proud. <laughs> like given so many Australian companies are just rubbish, it's, it's nice to see some occasionally that actually seem to know what they're doing. Yeah, look, look I, I, I get that. I think it was an extraordinary logistical effort on behalf of basically global capitalism to within a week in March spin up completely decentralized offices and completely decentralized office environments. And we've made the point a number of times on this podcast that of course only a fraction of the employment the employed population are in a position to work from home. That's 
absolutely 100% correct. But even just if it was that fraction, it was a remarkable, remarkable effort to keep the economy going. And no thanks due to the government here, I have to say. There was no, there was, um, no support. There were, there were some minor deregulations to allow various things to occur, such as, you know, some liquor license changes around the world so that you can, um, so that, that gin distilleries can mm. crack out. Um, and, uh, and deliver to your home, which became very important. D- delivery to your home. Um, in fact, I was reading The Age this morning. There's a piece in The Age that's all very upset that now, because we've been getting so much takeaway and delivery to our home, now there's a lot more trash. You're like, well. I mean, come on. People. Oh, yeah. God. <laughs> Let us go. Every Thursday night. Piles it's, and piles it, of cardboard. It is extraordinary. And, and of course, it, uh, the Institute of Public Affairs went through this as well. I mean, to. to um, yeah. I mean, here we are in this uh, wonderful Bayumai studio, uh, which we've created in order to be um, part of the digital communications revolution and uh, get a and be a voice for freedom. Uh, in the digital world, and uh, but we couldn't use it for five months, and the in, entire staff were working from home. That was that was a hell of an experience. <laughs> <laughs> so so let's let's oh, you raised it. So let's talk about the tech piece. Um, we've we've had a lot of conversations, and I think there's two views on the right right now, or the centre right, is that um, technology is a force for liberty, which has been ever since I've been involved in the centre right has been the standard view um, uh, for the most part. The internet has disrupted media monopolies, um, uh, means that we don't have to regulate so many things, um, that sort of thing. But in the last couple of years, um, uh, coincident, and I'm not, um, and maybe connected to the Trump administration, there's been a real tech backlash, particularly on the centre-right. Where? How do you think about that? So, so you know, we've, you've been part of these conversations too, and we've had some disagreements on it. But, but where do you sort of fall on the? Are you optimistic about technology and liberty? Are you, are you more worried than optimistic? Where, where do you sort of stand? Um, well, I guess this is where a conservative disposition comes up, which is I have to be worried. <laughs> I have to be worried. I mean, <laughs> I'm always worried. So why would I change my mind? <laughs> you know. So so um, I will always pause to be worried about things and and AI and stuff. But even within the lifetime of this podcast, I th- I think I remember. Do you remember when robot trucks were like the biggest issue going around? Mm. That there's going to be self-driving trucks, and I think um, Tucker Carlson, God bless him, did did an editorial on how there's 3 million truck drivers in America. What are they going to do once all their jobs have been taken by, mm. by self-driving trucks? Yep. So, and that was the biggest issue facing America that so, month. And this is why reading Ricardo would probably be quite helpful because they <laughs> yeah. had the same problem with looms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. The weavers of northern England were, were similarly concerned about um, their jobs. And, um, yes, I, I had a sudden vision of these uh, angry truck drivers pulling the robots out of the, out of the cabs and hurling them. Uh, there aren't physical robots in the cabs, you understand that. There's though. not? Yeah, no. But no, it's not like the Johnny this- Cabin Total Recall. <laughs> exactly. Oh, uh, well, there you go. Um, Robert Picardo um, played the Johnny Cab. Anyway, uh, so so I am always worried. You know, there, there's so much going on. Um, uh, and when I say tech, you know, I'm thinking of AI, but I'm also thinking of, you know, biotech, 
Um, and so as conservatives, you know, you, you do think where is all this going to go and, and how is it going to affect um, cultural mores and so on. Um, and then, But then eventually we do start to figure stuff out. And um, are we going to come back to media because we might do that as a subset? Yeah, we can keep, keep talking. I've got some things to say about technology. Okay. okay. And, then, and then the other one just at a, a very much a, a policy level that we've, we've done quite a few times on this show which is, again has genuinely um, been a debate of ideas in the centre-right is the impact of um, the tech giants on news gathering and um, uh, that it destroyed the business model of the newspapers, which means they've you know, shed you know, tens of thousands of journalists and, and become responsible for our news feeds. So that's, that's impacted the culture. I personally, as I've said on the podcast, I do think we have lost something in not having big thick newspapers you know slam onto our doorsteps every every saturday morning and having journalists actually um uh being able to do to do stuff um but then i look at the proposals to do of the uh, ACCC to to regulate outcomes um to enforce a compulsory to steal directly steal take money from those aforementioned tech giants and give it to newspaper companies and i just think i don't i don't see how that's a sustainable solution or, but or but, a good, but good the, solution the criticism there so i like newspapers too and i i do have a nostalgia for that time when you would pick up the saturday age and it would be in two massive parts from the news agent mm. um or it would come in two rolled up things yep. that were thrown on your lawn um, but what you're complaining about there is not the big tech giants, to clarify. You're complaining about, complaining about the existence of the internet because the story, in fact, that happened, it's not that Facebook and Google took that advertising. It's that car sales and domain um, and uh, Seek and Monster and all these classified advertisement websites, many of which were owned by the newspapers because the newspapers aren't that stupid. Um, uh, they all went online. It turns out that the internet was just much better delivering material than the thing that was thrown on my lawn every every Saturday. So I, I think what's happening right now and, and the ACCC um, thing is a nice instance of it is that because the, the, the conservative movement has become like the left. They see something, they see a status quo they don't like, and they try to pick a big company or wealthy capitalist and blame specifically for that. It's like during the mining boom when the left in Australia would pick a couple of big miners and say, This is why we don't have infrastructure because we're wasting the mining boom. It's exactly like that. And and we can't, and Tucker Carlson who I, I know a lot of people really enjoy watching, but that conservative populism, I think that's an intellectual dead end. It's, it's no more convincing than when, uh, you know, it, it, it's no more intellectually convincing than any of the muckraking journalism of the 1910s and 1920s, all of whom became the socialists of the 30s. And I guess, you know, this is partly what we've been trying to do on the podcast. This, this, this was our mission because, as I say, I mean, it is the role of a cons of conservatives to be the sentinels. You know, they 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 are, um, you know, it's like uh, what is it, American sniper. 
Um, I haven't seen American Sniper. Um, uh, when he's when he's dead. Uh, God, I hope I've got the right movie. But anyway, <laughs> his dad's explaining that you know, um, you know the 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 community. Um, uh, I don't want to say the sheep because uh, the sheep. The okay, it is a metaphor after all. The and it wasn't masses. a movie. I'm yep. quoting a metaphor. I would never say this, but um, uh, the happy sheep grazing contentedly, you know, are always under threat um, from the wolves. And you know, it, the conservatives are the, you know, the the sentinels who who surround the sheep and and keep an eye out and and if necessary protect them. And and so I think the conservative instincts are always right. But to, you've got but but in that to be on the in, in that case, you've also got a problem that you've got the sentinels screaming wolf constantly and every time there's a and not even screaming wolf constantly but the wolf is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and more apocalyptic and just the end it, it is the end of conservatism it is unless we do this it is the end of possibly everything so you haven't got this dedicated calm sniper protecting the sheep against the wolf you've got someone in a corner screaming constantly about wolves that may or may not be there yeah so this this um but that's what i mean about the mission of the podcast then is to take that um okay here's a here's a threat here's an issue here's something we need to work through um just to say um you know the again to come back to populism you know one of the Undoubted good things, I think, that comes out of the that comes out of an occasional populist revival like that of Trump is to suddenly put the spotlight on you know the forgotten part of a population, you know the ordinary working people of the, the population, uh, and you don't have to you know use goddamn in front of elites you know in every sentence to understand that this is a genuine thing that that uh, and uh, we had already um, in. Uh, Something like Charles Murray's uh, coming apart on the bifurcation of America into a like a, a five percent, you know, highly educated, intermarried, um, you know, overlord class, as opposed to a you know five percent, virtually outside of the workforce, incredible social dysfunction class. Um, you know that that predated Trump, so that was a, like, and Charles Murray can't stand Trump, but it was <laughs> it was sort of interesting that he in in an analytical. Um, uh, empirical way had actually said, look, here's a real issue. And and if you'd read Charles Murray and and Hillbilly Elegy and then Trump's elected, you go, oh, yeah, I understand that, whereas so many people didn't. And, you know, I think that's, you know, all power to populist revivals if every now and again the, the governing class is, is reminded <laughs> of the rest of the population. Can there be a effective populism then can there be a populism that understands how to actually positively affect those lives i just i can't remember who tweeted this but it really struck me that someone pointed out on the internet um you know so we identify the hillbilly hillbilly allergy problem okay great and the populists of the United States at least, or the post-Trump populist leaders, think that the way that we're going to fix the Appalachian social issue is tariffs and breaking up Facebook. Now, that neither of those two things are going to fix it, right? In fact, probably deregulation, corporate tax cuts, these things that damn well don't look populist. They look like handing over money to the big end of town. But in fact, 
they function to grow an economy actually do. So in that sense, you know, does the uh, I completely believe that the neoliberal set of policies about low taxes, low tariffs, low regulation will deliver for precisely those populations that populists speak um, claim to speak on behalf. But um, populists instead come in and and mm. and and propose to you know okay crack down on no, crack no, down no. on foreign imports. Okay, I I think I actually have a response to that. Oh, that's um, good. So let, let's let's take jobs. So again, this is the advantage of a populist response and and where where the centre right is cohesive. Um, if you're on the left and you're sort of Davos man, you're like, oh yes, I'm very worried about the underclass. What we need is a universal basic income. <laughs> You know, we, we don't want anybody to starve. We don't want anybody to suffer. So we're just going to make sure that everyone's got essentially a minimum wage whether they work or not. And one of the things that distinguishes uh, those of us on the centre-right is we say, no, work work is good. You know, we, we're here for the, um, uh, you know, to have lives of meaning, you know, it, it, you know in the Aristotelian sense of um, uh, human flourishing as, you know, what we're actually put on this earth to do. Um, you know, work is very, very important. The dignity of work is fundamental to our conception of self, our ability to uh, form families, uh, to take on responsibilities, to, to go on the journey of life. So stick your UBI where the sun don't shine, mate. And, and that was the instinctive reaction of, you know, Appalachia, if you like, um, as it is, you know, with the coal miners of the Hunter Valley um, uh, or... or or Murrinbar, you know, they're they're like I don't, um, I don't want to be retrained into coding. I don't, you know, <laughs> I like doing this. You know, it's bloody tough work, um, and I, you know, and if I'm fly in, fly out, I don't like being away from my family. But you know, I'm proud of what I do. You know, so, and in with again with Trump, this is where it was more sophisticated. So on that exact example, they did actually put tax cuts. And uh, particularly, uh, not so much the changes to the marginal rate, but the 100% um, write-off of investments in the first year, they put that into a populist framework. That's what Trump did. This is where Trump is the um, uh, rhetorical uh, genius that Scott Adams claims he is. You know, it was pretty impressive. And Gideon Rosner flew to America to meet up with uh, the Job Creators Network uh, and, and wrote about it in the Institute of public affairs, the IPA review, so there's another plug, um, uh, wrote a terrific piece on, you know, how they were going around the communities uh, of America explaining why tax cuts did matter for jobs, not not for an abstract economy, not for GDP figures, not for, but for jobs in this area. And indeed that wave of investment, I, I think, was unleashed and it wasn't all about tariffs. So I take your point yeah, about tariffs, yeah, but look, I think there was a, re- a more rounded story there. Sure, sure, there was. And it's hard to characterise four years of very complex American politics. But it is striking to me that the corporate tax cuts were important politically when they happened, but were not part of a messaging, were not part of the populist stance for much after since they were since they were um, passed, so and and I guess the what we're discussing here is a difference 
Or is there a difference between the stance you take and does that stance matter and the policy um, approaches you have? So you can have a politician that talks about one thing, gives speeches on one thing, but in fact in office, in practical mm. policy sense, does quite another. And if there was a populist person who took a took exactly the same stance that Trump did and did a uniformly libertarian <laughs> public policy outcome, I'd probably be pretty happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the other thing about um, populist instincts, Chris, is the other great uh, thing that we that we've dealt with uh, is coronavirus, COVID, mm -hmm. and uh, my take on that has been I was really struck by I felt like intellectually we'd been preparing for that for years in the sense of the work that we've done about because I didn't but okay I'm glad you felt like that well there were <laughs> the mental you know mental models around um, you know how experts make decisions and yeah. how governments are informed by experts and um, you know, I, I had an interest in, in climate change. I have a chapter in Climate Change the Facts 2020, which is available at all good bookshops or on our website, um, uh, talking about talking about this. But it's not only to do with climate change. It's in so many areas, you know, the tyranny of the experts. And there is a bit of a left-right divide. I mean, the, across so many areas, um, the left just believes that science is uh, – you can just quote science – I'll just throw science at you and like the science has spoken. And then coronavirus came along and we saw that again. And, um, you know, even down to the, uh, uh, the apotheosis, I think, of when the Victorian government had been quoting their models for so long and then finally they released the models and and everyone sort of looked inside them and they're like, was that it? <laughs> it was a couple of spreadsheets, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, and and that's right. And I think there's we now are in a political environment where there is this tick that you can say, all, all I'm doing is following the science. And apparently that is a powerful enough rhetorical statement to make that you don't need to ask what specific science was this published in a journal? Like, I, I, when I hear I'm following the science, I'm like, okay, go on, talk, talk me through. I mean, that's, um, and not because I'm an epidemiologist, but that sounds really interesting. It'd be just really nice to know about why that was. I sort of think that coronavirus has been a bit of a wash though for the question about populism versus the elites. And I'll explain why. I don't think that we have been able to convince, certainly in Australia, the population about understanding the risks of the virus spreading. And it's been, it is undoubtedly true that there is a near zero tolerance for that risk out in the population. And while I've got a lot of criticisms about what Dan Andrews said and even more did and even more comically what Stephen Marshall did for three days or two days or whatever it was. I'm not sure that there was really an approach that any government could have taken if the population felt as it did about the danger of the virus. And so I'm a little bit stuck in that sense because while I can imagine an alternative world that's not an old, that's an alternative world that imagines a different population who thought something else. And I just don't think a government would have survived it if uh, that government hadn't responded aggressively to the virus. 
Um, now, I think the United States is a different example, but I just, I, I'm, I'm not sure there was an alternative stance to take. I, but, which is not to say, and we've spent a year talking about this, which is not to say that every choice they made was a good one. Indeed. In fact, the vast majority were. were, were or, 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 or indeed that every decision they made was. was based on the science. Based the, on the science. The science. And, I mean, and I will always remember, I will always remember Stephen Marshall's discovery of a new strain of the virus. Yes. Because it was the, transferred on a pizza box. So and there's no other possible there explanation. There's no other possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this was, um, I know, it was, it was crazy. Um, uh, uh, the, the things done in the and and what we discovered was the things done in the name of science, which is really part of our political culture um, of of evading responsibility and a political class that evades responsibility and wants wants to hide behind science. But to but but to phrase my point as a question, Scott, what do you do if the population, if the voters, um, are absolutely terrified of something? Well, I well, I can quote myself on on the podcast where I made the point that one of the things you could do. I, I was talking about. Um, so you're right about risks, um, and you know, in some ways, politicians just have to accept the world as they find it. And um, I talked on the pod podcast about the. I mean, we the we we pay them to right. So yeah, that's right. Um, the the uh, and, I, and I've done a fair bit of work in risk communication over the years um, in in other roles. And, um, you know, there's the phenomenon of the social amplification of risk um, and systematic misperceptions of risks. Um, and, um, yes, if populations do do this, they, they vastly overstate, um, you know, some risks um, and understate others. And, you know, the closer they are to you as a person, you tend to understate them, you know, as you, you know, <laughs> puffing away on your packet a day, you're like, ah, oh, well, it's not really going to affect yeah. me, that, that sort of thing. Um, but Fukushima was the most important thing to happen. That's yeah. right. And and how many people died of Fukushima? Oh, yeah. hundreds of thousands, you know. <laughs> it's a, it's that kind of thing, you know. Yeah. Um, and um, But what I said was, so here we are, we've got this phenomenon of the social amplification of risk. People are terrified of the coronavirus. We have the media, which is known to be, you know, one of the engines of the social amplification, which fills your feed every day with horror stories of the absolute worst cases in all um, in all instances, and you know, attribution error, you know, deaths from COVID versus deaths with COVID, so on, so on. Then the Victorian government decided to make ads because they didn't think people were terrified enough. So when you say what can politicians do when they're faced with this systematic misperception of risk and this risk-averse um, environment that the general population is, well, you can start by not making it worse. I haven't watched a Dan Andrews press conference for a couple of weeks, thank mm. God. Mm. But um, uh, when we were watching them every day and then ultimately every Sunday, uh, he would always open with this virus is so bad. Mm. This is the, the this virus will spiral out. Like there was a... But but that was a it, it it feeds on itself right because that ends up being that that's him justifying or the government justifying the um, extraordinary public policy hmm. approach that they've taken. Um, yeah, look, look, and I'm a little bit nihilist, I guess. I, I, I take your point that there is a there is a social amplification role, but I'm a little bit nihilist about this, just because 
one of the things that I found in a long, many years of research into regulation is that we have more regulation in part because we have a population with a different attitude to risk across the board. And we expect government to regulate away risks in a way that we didn't 50 years ago. Um, the regulatory state is has been both imposed on us and we have asked for it. So, for example, um, uh, uh, there's a, a sort of famous anecdote about, you know, how do, how do we get regulations on toys all the time? Um, well, what happens typically is that some child will come to harm off a, off a toy with a sharp bit or, um, and the minister in charge will make a statement saying that this will never happen because there's a big media outcry. And then they hand it off to the regulators and everybody forgets about it, of course. It goes off the front page. The politician forgets they ever did something. Um, and 12 months later, you've got this huge regulatory uh, regulatory framework around that particular category of toys. And they've added other things. They've expanded the description of them and all that. And then that's just how regulation happens. There is a, there is a bad thing that occurs justifiable like everybody is justifiably angry about the bad thing that occurs and then ultimately it ends up with a massive regulatory spiral um we just get more of it it's the, yeah. the, the sort um, of ra ratchet effect of regulation yeah well, of course and what and we've seen that we've seen that accelerate in the last nine months absolutely and 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 uh i can refer listeners back to the the episodes that we did on red tape you know the IPAs cut red tape to unleash prosperity program and the um, uh, some of the books that uh, you wrote you had um, what was the red tape book that you uh, Australia's red tape crisis and the growth of Australia's red yeah and the state. point we were saying is given what you just said what are the institutional measures that governments can institute um, um, to work in the opposite direction and and uh, as they've done in jurisdictions like British Columbia and, and, and various American states is to actually set targets to reduce the regulatory load. And we brought people out from George Mason University um, in America to talk about this and to actually do it. And we introduced uh, and we've been able to audit regulations in Australia and the Australian states. And do you think you can get governments interested in actually doing that? <laughs> but yeah, but, it's, so it's very frustrating. The, the situation we're in right now in Australian politics is that deregulation is, as I read it, literally the Commonwealth government's only plan to get us out of these doldrums. The problem is that it's all well and good to state that you want deregulation and even to insist that you want deregulation to the departments, but it all has to be gone through by bit yeah and there's no there's no alternative to deleting specific pieces of legislation regulation in specific pieces of legislation you've just got to fight it one i was going to say I, I take it back actually when i say government do you think governments will listen actually they did listen <laughs> but it's about then taking the steps to do yeah. it in a systematic way to do uh, it in a systematic way and that's what um uh, Darcy Allen and so, Aaron so, so the federal I, government is genuine in its in its interest in reducing red yeah. tape. So, so but it, it's just uh, so what I'd Darcy like to see more of is a next step. We, we've been thinking about this. Really, we need a way to for governments to be able to constrain themselves to have to make these regulatory changes, um, and those are institutional choices. So it's not yeah. yes. our role as free marketeers 
to identify specific, or I don't think it's the most productive for us to identify specific pieces of regulation that should be gotten rid of. I think what we want to do is we want to build in, we want to be um, arguing for institutional changes that force regulation to reduce, like like the one and two out um, okay. models that, you know, we, we should be enforcing those. We should be making absolutely. those happen. No, we absolutely should. Um, what I'm thinking, Chris, is yep. so we, we have, there's so many issues that we've covered and we haven't even talked about other themes um, that we've done over the years like the collapse of Western civilization, things that are <laughs> moderately important. Speaking of apocalypse. Um, and, and the contribution of, of, of Zach Gorman and Bella Debrera and Andrew Bushnell and others who've made to our analysis of culture. But two big topics were probably enough that we could manage today But because I did want to leave some time to talk about um, what we've learned out of what really started as um, a bit of fun at the end, our, our books and culture segment. Um, but, uh, you know, I personally have found it, you know, I've got a lot more out of it than I thought I would. But, um, <laughs> but why, don't you, why don't you talk about uh, your, well, so, your reflections so on So I, I, in preparation, I went through the list of um, uh, things that I'd spoken about on the books and culture section and um, at least for this year, not not the previous year. Um, happily, Scott, I have actually read some books. I was I've been very worried this year that I hadn't read any books. I've played a few computer games, it turns out, and a few board games as well. Um, uh, you know, I played Micro Microsoft Flight Simulator <laughs> and talked stage. about it on the podcast and talked about it on the podcast <laughs> and um, uh, had the dream of flying once again. Although, in fact, I, I flew to um, Brisbane over the weekend, which was just. The weirdest thing that I've done all year, um, but great fun nonetheless. Um, I think that I don't know whether it's this year specifically, but I think there's been a real demand for quality pop stuff. I think I have needed, and we have spoken a lot about um, just the 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 sort of stuff that you watch or read that allows you to decamp. To, to separate yourself from what's going on. And the most iconic example of that is, um, uh, what's it called? Tiger King. Now, Tiger King, mm. in retrospect, was not good. <laughs> um, well, uh, what, and, what do you say in retrospect? But anyway. Well, okay. uh, look, it, it, I had forgotten it existed um, uh, until, I, until I realized that I spoke about it on the podcast because I'd watched it. But Tiger King is the perfect example of the sort of, and for those who don't know, or those who've um, blacked it out of their memory, it's this um, bizarre character who um, has a private tiger um, zoo and then gets arrested, um, all sorts of things. There have been arguments that Donald Trump should pardon the Tiger King, all this sort of thing. Um, but I think culturally, it was a throwback to a world in which we would all watch the same thing each night or once a week when we had all we had was free to air television. There were cultural moments, what you used to call the um, the water cooler television. It's the stuff you chatted about. And we're not, I, I think we're richer for the diversity and the extraordinary depth of cultural products that we can get at any time. But we have very few of those as we, uh, mm. you know, th there was a time in the 1990s where you would watch, everybody would watch the West Wing. Uh, sorry, not the West Wing. West Wing was one of them, but the X-Files. Mm. Um, and you could talk about that 
with school friends or colleagues and, and so forth. And I, we don't have much of that anymore. So looking at this and then seeing what your culture picks, I think that was really, it struck me that it was quite rare for us to want to talk about the same show or book mm. at the same, on the same week because we, we weren't that coordinated. No, 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 <laughs> no. It's, it's, yeah, it's totally, totally moving around in time. Yeah. And, and, and again, this goes to the tech thing, right? And um, I think it's important for us to remind ourselves sometimes about how different the world we live in is to even what it was 10 years ago. Um, we, we talk about big tech and we talk about suddenly the role that a social media platform, which wasn't really didn't exist 20 years ago the role that it plays in u.s presidential elections is like top of mind public policy the role that social media plays in governing information um politically governing the uh, advertising revenue all that sort of thing that's remarkable that is hugely different um the existence of this podcast is a testament to that change the existence of the studio we're in is a testament to that change um, it's easy to just forget how new all this stuff is. And I, and I think that was my big takeout from just looking about all the movies I watched, TV shows I watched, primarily TV shows we didn't watch movies this year, um, and, and books I read and computer games I played. Everything is really new and you couldn't have this list five, ten years ago. Yeah, and, yeah, I certainly had moments um, uh, even in, say, the early stages of lockdown um, where it was like, thank God for streaming services, and, and, <laughs> yeah. and I really, really enjoyed just being able to talk about what I what I'd looked at. Um, yeah. uh, but I also, for me, it was uh, deeply satisfying because um, I love books, and uh, it was deeply satisfying to be able to um, read a book and then be able to tell people that I'd read it. <laughs> and not be that annoying to your friends and, and family. And not that annoying to my <laughs> friends. And um, yeah, to, to, to those who have stuck with me um, uh, by listening to the podcast, thank you because, um, of course, you don't get a choice <laughs> once you've tuned in. Um, and I'm going to tell you about this book that I've read, whereas my friends can like, yeah, nah, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and to talk about, you know, and I, I, I do believe in still that books are important and I like reading important books. And even even the novels that I read, I was flicking back over them Um that I at least have a sense of their importance, like Canalsgaard, you know, when I took, I, like it's a six-book series and when I read the final one, which is um, uh, uh, a reflection called The End, I think, um, you know, that, that would represent something like five years of my life reading all <laughs> those. Um, or Elena Ferrente's My Brilliant Friend, which is now an excellent series as well, so I could talk about that and... Um, I think I had three or four goes at it between the series and the different books. You know, that that uh, I, I hope that listeners have got something out of me talking about those. I, I was talking to someone uh, yesterday, uh, Deidre, uh, was telling me how uh, not only did she pick up on my recommendation for Hilary Mantel's um, uh, series on uh, Thomas Cromwell and Henry VIII, uh, Wolf Hall, the Wolf Hall trilogy, but that it had completely transformed, transformed her interest in history, mm. having never before been interested in history. Now through that novel, terrific novelization, 
now sees why I'm so interested because through reading history, it's not just interesting in its own sake, it sheds light on the conditions of our own time. Yeah. And to go right back to the top of the show, you start to see historical continuities. And and uh, so that's deeply satisfying to have shared, just shared a culture pick on a podcast and someone say, yeah, well, I actually did that. Um, I, I, I like that and, and uh, with indulgence, I, I sort of – I, I'm a historian. It's our final episode, um, Chris. You can be as indulgent as you like. I'm a historian. <laughs> um, I, I've always adored history. It was really the only thing I wanted to do when I was at school. Um, but I've often thought about what does history teach you? Um, and, yes, there's there's a sort of understanding human nature and continuities and that sort of thing. But I think what it's always taught me or the way I've used my understanding of history is to understand the origin of something whether that's a piece of public policy or an institution, is to understand how contingently shaped that institution or policy is by its origins itself. Contingently shaped. Contingently shaped. So what I mean by that is um, things exist for a reason when they're first introduced. I, um, the, uh, my thesis was about this, right? So the, the bank deposit guarantee um, or the, uh, the claim that any deposit in a bank in Australia is um, risk-free, it is protected in some way by the government, and the controversy is how it is protected exactly, came out of a specific historical context to do a very specific thing. In the 40s? In the, in the 1940s. So my argument and my thesis was um, as part of, of the proposal to nationalise the banks, the um, Labor government of the time had to promise simultaneously that it, that a deposit in one of those banks will always be protected by the government. Um, now, to understand that origin is actually, in my argument, is to understand a lot about how banking regulation and how financial sector regulation has evolved ever since. But it's the same again. So, so it was just an accident of history bound up with their plans for nationalisation. Correct. So, so here's a question for you. Stop, by the here's way. a question for you as a conservative, right? If everything we see is at least some part an accident of history of people who were not different to us because hum human nature is a constant, but thinking and trying to maximize different things, trying to fight the 1951 election or what have you. Um, how does that make you think about the notion of defending those institutions or those policy frameworks or that sort of thing? Because that's that's where I'm, I, I actually have really mixed views. Yeah, um, so conservative but Burkean conservative, I mean, you know, you never want to be a reactionary, just hangs on to something just because it exists and it's from the past. Um, and uh, and God forbid um, that any uh, we should ever give in to the rationalist impulse that Andrew Bushnell describes as, you know, uh, systematically, you know, clearing everything in a sort of a French Revolution Jacobin way of um, uh, leaving the field clear for reason to create everything new from year zero. Um, so I do, I do feel like the, the point about Birkin conservatives is, you know, it is, um, uh, very much, uh, a sort of a, uh, it was created in that, in that 18th century environment 
which which was about trade and commerce and and society. But what Burke was saying is, you do also need a sense of affiliation to the to the institutions around you, and you know, starting with your most immediate institutions of you know family, neighbourhood. Um, your town, your city, you know, sort of radiating outwards, you know, and the civil society organisations, the little platoons. And so the, the tension is always that um, you have the, uh, these things that are contingent and maybe don't, don't make sense um, at some level and, and, and the role of reason in, and economists, is, amongst others, is to shed light on that. But I guess, yeah, the conservative disposition says that affiliation is important. You know, we make institutions and then institutions make us. Uh, and then I know if, if John Ruskin was here, I think he would quote Chesterton's, you know, fence. Um, you know, if you see a fence, you don't tear it down without understanding why it was built in the first place. <laughs> you know, so there's a little bit of that going on. So it is this, but again, that's that's the contest I think that we've tried to bring out on this on this podcast between the, you know, the rational analytical approach and the and the conservative impulse. And that's why this, the centre right must be a conversation. It must be a a fusion, if you will, if you will, just to to bring it right back. <laughs> Um, my, the other part of my books and culture was um, something I didn't plan on, but I noticed as I was talking, I was talking about shows, so uh, say something like Bill Hader, the former SNL comedian, made a show called Barry, mm. and it was about an actor, uh, sorry, about a guy who was a professional hitman who then decides he wants to be an actor. <laughs> Hilarity ensues, uh, or not. Um uh, there was a show show on Amazon Prime called The Boys, which was based on um, a graphic novel um, where there's this superheroes who aren't really heroes. They're actually villains and they're employed by this villainous corporation. And I realised I was – and I must really go back through the list in some length. I discovered that what I was talking about was this whole genre has flipped where um, there's no – Hero, there's no heroes. You can't just, unless you're in the Disney Marvel universe, you can't just make a show where there's good guys who are heroes. Mm. Um, and uh, it's like, what, why are all these, like why am I watching this show with this guy, you know, say the Bill Hader one, because uh, that's set in the real world unlike the boys. It's set in the real world. And it's like you know, I'm meant to sympathise with this guy or what is <laughs> He's a hitman, and okay. So now he, he his girlfriend, he's got a fight going on with this girlfriend who he wants to impress as an actor, and and while people are trying to, it's like why am I why am I even in this universe? Like this is insane, and you know this it's nihilistic, um, you know. And so this brings us back to the collapse of Western civilization. After all, sure. that um, we've totally pulled down this this idea of heroism that. You know, part of the role of culture is to reflect back, you know, the sublime, the beautiful, the best, the best in 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 humanity, and and to share that. And so, a little bit, the downside for me of disappearing into the streaming services over the past two years has been to realise that some of this is actually deeply, deeply pernicious and corrosive of our culture. And I think of of humans' motivation to actually enjoy the life. You know that is should be such a blessing, but isn't the epitome of that um, the Joker movie? Um, in the sense that the Joker is 
uh, twofold. There's two interesting things about it. Obviously, it it has no hero. So Batman, who is obviously a sort of anti-hero anyway, mm. um, uh, doesn't exist in that film. But also what interests me and what annoyed me about that film is that there's no need for him to be the Joker. He could just be any broken mm. psychopath. But we had to filter it through this hero, superhero um, mythos. We had to make it a breakaway film in order to tell that story. Um, I am it at my most conservative when I think about you know the the idea the infantilization of so much of our popular culture that it mm. has to be superhero based. It has to go through existing mythoses. It has to be mm. built in. Now sometimes that works. So we are actually building. So I think there's two parts of it where we are building sort of not religions but shared cultural understandings. We know how one thing maps to another thing, which you know, perhaps because we haven't got the classics um, knowledge that we might have had, we, we, um, we, we've had to rebuild that. Um, and it builds worlds. And it's also the fact that movies are now TV episodes rather than um, uh, individual movies as they may have been. But I still think, yeah, I, I, I don't like it as a cultural thing. I, I think there's a, um, there's a there's a literacy that involves us it involves you joining a new story and learning about new characters and navigating a new world that um, apparently there's just no demand for certainly no supply of in modern popular culture at least in the big banner movies and TV series. Yeah, no, um, well well said. No, um, and hey, you know, there's a conservative in there just busting to get out sometimes, Chris. <laughs> it's amazing what kids do for you, isn't it? Um, I'll take a moment to think about what you might like to say as closing remarks. I might just um, take this opportunity to um, look down this camera. Thank you, Saul. And um, just say uh, to remind everyone that, yes, this is the final episode of, of Looking Forward uh, in, in this format at least as a as a weekly podcast, as a weekly panel show. This is the smallest panel we've ever had. It's usually been two, three or four, even five I think on occasion. <laughs> uh, and um, because next year we, at the IPA, we really do, uh, there'll be so much digital product uh, that we're very excited about. Uh, and we're going to concentrate on all sorts of documentaries and different series uh, of podcasts and, and video series. And um, so we'll pause uh, looking forward for the time being. Um, it may come back in different formats under the banner. Uh, it was a name invented, by the way, by uh, uh, or suggested by Chris based on the original publication of the Institute of Public Affairs in uh, 1943 um, when it was formed, a survey of attitudes of Australian businesses. I think it was an excellent title. Well done. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you, Scott. Um, so I'd like to thank uh, listeners. I'd like to thank all the people at the IPA that have worked on this podcast along the journey, um, uh, the Sauls, the Mitches, the Joshes, the Steves. Um, I'd like to thank John Roscombe for uh, giving it the green light back in the day, uh, back in uh, January last year. Uh, it's been quite a ride. Um, I'd like to thank everyone for listening uh, to me. I've learnt a lot doing this, very much enjoyed it, um, and we've dealt with some big issues along the way. Um, Chris, any any final reflections from you on this? Look, look Scott, I don't have a speech prepared, um, and all those thank yous are ditto to me. 
ditto from me as well. But I think what I've learned from this is I'm still fundamentally deeply optimistic about the future for liberty. I think that the debates that we're having now are different to what they were in the 1980s and 1990s and even early 2000s when I first um, was employed at the IPA in 2004. Um, uh, and the debates that we're having now are different. Um, I think it's incumbent upon us as people who care about the future of freedom to keep up with and reform our arguments for liberty all the time, in it, particularly in this environment that they are changing so rapidly and that the technological changes are changing so much. And that's to, to give my own plug, that, so that's what we're doing at RMIT now. So um, by focusing on frontier technologies, we can open more space for individual liberties, individual rights, open markets, um, individual control of your own sovereignty and that sort of thing. And I think the centre-right in Australia, um, listeners, um, I think we, we, we need to be educated and engaged in what is definitely going to be the future of freedom. Um, uh, and that's sort of what I'm proud to be doing at RMIT now. Yeah, no, well, well said, yes. We must draw on the, the past and, and, and what we know about freedom through history, but um, we have to invent it anew yeah, every th day. These are internal principles, but the policy challenges are different and they're, um, and the pace at which they are getting different is only increasing. And, and in a Burkean sense, again, if you want people to have affinity with these ideas, yeah. it doesn't all happen up here. It's got to be from here. It's, yep. it's got to be how does this connect to me as a person and the meaning that I'm trying to find uh, in our life. And that's that's been our mission. Yeah. So thank you, Scott. Thank you to the IPA. It's been awesome. Thank, thank you, Chris. It's been great to have you. It's been a great journey. And um, thank you all. I can't say we'll be back with more <laughs> next week. Uh, but again, okay, adieu. Adieu.